0: Maggie Louie remembers the moment her career changed forever working with the LA times on digital and mobile products Maggie now the founder and CEO of auto remembers a friend asking her to look into an issue they were having with their website
1: a friend of mine's company asked me to look at their ad tags and figure out why their traffic was going through the roof but they weren't making any more money they couldn't figure it out and I had suspected that their ad tags were either misconfigured or there's something easy there and after about 24 hours there looking through their code I discovered that they indeed were being stolen from internally in fact the head developer was hijacking all of the ad tags and doing all sorts of crazy stuff
0: the lines of code hidden in the JavaScript were driving traffic and stealing money and it was that revelation that opened Maggie's eyes to underground ad fraud and bot traffic and this ad fraud wreaks havoc. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Maggie details how that moment led her to launch auto, and she discusses the company's efforts to democratize access to internet security for all, its Chrome extension to protect consumers when online shopping, and the variety of enterprise solutions for businesses her team has developed. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the founder and president of DevCon or Auto by DevCon. I'm going to have to have you clear it up. Maggie Louie, thanks for joining us on the show.
1: Hi, great. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So is the company's name Otto? Auto by DevCon. DevCon, I don't <laughs> I'm trying to I want to make sure I get this right for our audience.
1: Sure. Well, um, anybody who's in the startup world can, I'm sure, relate to this, which is, you know, first name blues, <laughs> which is, you know, you start a company, you're moving fast, and you at some point look back and go, was well, that a good name or not? And um, you know, when I first started the company, I you know, had caught a developer who was a con artist. And so this idea of DevCon was this great idea. And as it kind of faded and went, moved on and we moved more into automation of security, we've just decided that that brand really suited what we do today, but also that um, we could probably use brand reboot.
0: So the name of the business is Auto now.
1: Yes, it's Auto. And we're going to go through over this next year, a brand transition from, so you'll see, you know, Auto by DevCon as we're fading out uh, away from DevCon. DevCon also existed it was more of our core, you know, corporate, but non-brand uh, facing name. But for all of our commercial product will be branded auto.
0: Awesome. Now, DevCon, what we got from LinkedIn was pretty amazing. I want you to dive into this for us. So it said that in 2017, you discovered a hacker was stealing nearly a million dollars in ad revenue from a publishing company while at the LA Times. And they were doing this by hiding discrete sections of the website and exploiting third-party JavaScript. And Otto was born from that problem. Is that right?
1: Well, so one clarification there. Um, so it wasn't the LA Times that this hacker was stealing from. I did work at the LA Times and I was in product. And that uh, expertise around MarTech and ad tech was what led me to discover um, a friend of mine's company uh, who had asked me to look in at their, their ad tags and figure out why their traffic was going to the roof, but they weren't making any more money, and they couldn't—they couldn't figure it out. And you know, I had suspected that their ad tags were either misconfigured or there's something easy there. And after about 24 hours there, looking through their their code, I discovered that uh, they indeed were being stolen from internally. In fact, and um, the head developer was hijacking all of the ad tags and wow, um, just yeah, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. But that's what, yeah, that's when I decided to launch the company. What I noticed when I was looking at the code was he didn't write this. It wasn't one consistent person. It was obvious that these were kind of script kitty kind of copy and paste things. And there were multitudes of, of kinds of, of exploit kits that were being used on that site. And what, what that opened my eyes to was this huge world of, of, um, of underground ad threat beyond ad fraud. and and bot traffic and like that. But this actual distribution of malware, Trojans, stealing revenue, um, hijacking tags, and and all sorts of, you know, fun JavaScript injection stuff.
0: So for our audience, what exactly is
1: Auto? So Auto is an evolution of DevCon. When we started, really, we were solving this problem for the advertising MarTech industry, and we were stopping people from using ads to deploy attacks or to steal revenue. And what we discovered along the way was that uh, the underlying problem, which is JavaScript vulnerability or risks and third-party JavaScript vulnerability and risk, was you know maybe made up of 5% within the MarTech industry. But basically, every website, consumer-facing website, has some dependency on JavaScript or third-party JavaScript, whether it's a partner or vendor like analytics or a shopping cart, or if it's um, you know, even... Libraries, you know, so open source libraries, and that these kinds of uh, attacks were just like what we were seeing in the ad ecosystem, but that were enabling attacks like, you know, Magecart um, and other you know, ways that hackers essentially can exploit JavaScript and gain access to either the site or to the customers in the browser. So automating the solution was sort of the idea that made us change the name to Auto. And he's a cute otter.
0: We love others. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Any animal-based logo has always got a high probability of success, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And I want to dive into this world of this problem that you're trying to solve because I've been there. I've been on the side as a vendor where our solution required some type of script application, especially in the world of e-commerce, right? Because in the world of e-commerce and publishers, they're constantly trying to attribute uh, user traffic. And in order to do that, usually there's a script that needs to be on the page, either header or footer. Uh, some type of attribution tag, some type of cookie potentially on the customer. And then I remember that, you know, us adding one script to your website actually opens the door for basically another application to gain access to whatever the user's doing. And so you, were even, you even talk about this inside of your, uh, on your website. It says that 90% of websites that you monitored in September of 2020 had out-of-date JavaScript libraries, 6% had high severity reported uh, CVEs for reported XSS attacks. Now that's not changing though, in regards to applications requiring script app, you know, applying script, what do you see happening? That's opening these outdated libraries. Is it because different like business units are all applying their own uh, scripts to the site? And so like, no one really knows who owns what, like, how is this problem, I guess, becoming such a problem?
1: Yeah, you just nailed it too. It's it's the dependencies and the subdependencies and it's you can think of this too like the ad network. If you're familiar with the ad network and and real-time bidding and all of the things that go into enabling that to work right and then the pipes inside pipes inside pipes. So, you know, maybe that's not a good metaphor for people who aren't in, in the ad industry, but I'll say it like this with everyone moving to cloud-based microservices microapplications WYSIWYG platforms like you know shopify wix magento and magento is a good example cuz they had the mage cart attack that uh, affected i think over 1500 of their customers but you know one of the fallacies and biggest risks for e-commerce folks starting their, their new company is this idea that because they're you know starting with a safe foundation like one of these really premier e-commerce, WYSIWYG platforms or no-code platforms that they're protected against everything, which is a a little like thinking that because you bought a Volvo that's got a lot of safety features, that you don't have to keep your eyes on the road, you know, and that you're not responsible for the passengers in your car, you know. You start with a good foundation, but all this customization, you know, with great customization comes great responsibility. (laughs) And every time you you had some little bit of JavaScript, you know, even if your people check it, you know, Traditional teams are going to check JavaScript and they're going to try to look for what networks it's calling, see what it's loading, what it's doing, and then they pass it. But, you know, all of that is dynamic code. And it just like in the ad ecosystem where your money is made off of how many ads and new ads can I serve every millisecond. You've got a similar situation in e-commerce, the delivery of real-time analytics and buying intent and so on around um, someone who's right there on site right then is critical to the revenue model. And so by nature, by sheer function of the business, the business model is real-time, real-time analytics and revenue, which means the code has to be very dynamic and it's constantly changing. So really the security gap is a old school approach of doing static analysis on dynamic calls that are happening at, you know, every millisecond. It's a different you know, information cycle moving in and out. And this is a huge opportunity for hackers who want to look for a spot that's not being monitored regularly or real-time and, you know, do things like an a cart where they're attacking a partner's, you know, code because they can get access through that and into your world, right? Um, some attackers just do it in the browser and they may use someone else's code to deploy uh, or exploit, a, you know, a vulnerable library inside the browser when a user is on there. So, The store wouldn't even know that this had happened, you know, some data exfiltration. I don't know if that simplified it, actually. (laughs)
0: No, it does. What I was thinking about was, you know, when you think about, let's say, like the enterprise level, because we worked with some enterprise customers, so I would say any enterprise doing over 100 million online in sales is pretty, pretty darn huge. And we were working with a client, won't name them, they were definitely doing over 100 million online. To get anything added to their site, it required it to go through, it was like a, you had to enter a ticket. They, they submitted an internal ticket because they wanted to add our new software function to their site. It had to go through code review as you described, and they checked whatever it checked, of course, they wanted to know what kind of callbacks that we were making. We installed on a sandbox. I'm sure they tested to see, like, if I type in a credit card, do they take it? Do, uh, if I type in uh, an at symbol because I'm about to enter an email address, do they take it? You know, seven, ten digits, it's a phone number. Do, do they take it? They were probably testing all these different things and seeing what kind of script injections we were doing. My question to you is: My assumption was it was a super thorough test, but at the same time, now that I'm talking to you, I had a sneaking—I have a sneaking suspicion that it could potentially be people just filling tickets too. Like there's a ticket that says, Hey, put this script on the site. Do you, do you know, or have you dealt with that type of business process at the enterprise level? Do you, like, do you, yeah. how thoroughly are these scripts being tested
1: before applied to site? Well, so, I mean, so back in the, back in the old days, when I first started out in product, it was at legacy media companies and it was, it was American public media. And You know, the process that the digital teams, the digital product teams had to go through at that time, and, you know, hope non-collaboration for saying this, were very loose. And and the checks were: it was the first digital team that had access to the code that wasn't embedded in the IT department. There was no oversight of security or IT that was really understood what this code was going to do. So while we might kick it over to them to review, Essentially, they were going to check for speed. Did it add any, you know, latency? Did it do anything that you know seemed bad, And did it work? You know, and that that was it. Did it, call it did it throw any errors? And then you had the only people who really understood the breadth of what was possible uh, with this code were the product people who really understood this intersection of technology and, and revenue that was happening right at that time where you had this explosion of digital transformation that hit the media industry way long before anyone else and, and devastated, decimated it. You know, we saw revenue just take a nosedive. And so the need to adjust um, from that disruption was immediate. It was palpable. And so people were acting a little more startup you know, uh, well, let's try everything. How do we make money in the digital landscape? And they built these teams out of, you know, air overnight uh, to see, okay, how, can we make money in e-commerce? How can we get digital subscriptions? How do we make ad revenue? How do we make affiliate revenue for referrals for cars? Or, you know, all of these different ideas that were happening back then because we had these deep subscription lists of people who ordered the news and we had their credit cards and We knew there were ways we could make money and exploit this opportunity of our digital subscriptions, but it made it really easy and very fast moving. And nobody knew really what the dangers were at that time. And so it's only recently that I think it's really become apparent that JavaScript and dynamic code is a real big risk that's not being mitigated internally. And you see like agile models of DevSecOps evolving from just DevOps to, oh, we need security and part of, you know, our cycle of development. And then the next evolution that we're really advocating for is this post-production cycle. The other thing that happens, and I'm sure you know this in those shops, is that they go, okay, great, checkbox. You're good to go. Have a nice time. If we were NASA, it would look like we trained for months. We tested for months. We checked all the equipment. We built a rocket, and we sent you into outer space and said, "Bye, good luck, Bob." <laughs> you know, it's kind of when the code goes into production, what happens for development and security? But in this dynamic world we live in, where everyone's moving cloud, everyone's using microservices, uh, everyone's using affiliate code, you really have to have continuous testing, monitoring, and protection from these dynamic risks that are ever present.
0: So for yourself, tell us a little bit about how auto works. Because I agree, the landscape that you've painted is exactly what we're seeing and experiencing. And we see across all of our fellow guests, they talk about similar things. Like there's like a rush and appetite to launch new services, which can mean adding scripts to your site. How does auto work? Does it have to be implemented in the same way that it is like, it's a script that checks scripts? Give us an idea of how auto functions.
1: Sure. Well, we function in a few different ways. You know, our mission is to automate security for non-technical and technical teams. So we've got integrations with things like Cloudflare and AWS, and you can just put our code on site and you can deploy that way. Um, We have many, many different, we try to be ubiquitous in our integration. But then we also um, are rolling out this year because they're, uh, so many mom and pop stores that have been hit uh, by COVID and rebuilding their brick and mortar on, in digital and moving into e-commerce. We know that um, that's going to be a big risk. As hackers know, you know that those are people who aren't very technical. That's why they're using those platforms. And as they rush there, we're rolling out automated security for for those kinds of mom and pop S and B's uh, with a focus on really low cost because we know. Affordability is a big barrier to entry for having a secure site, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So we, in in that model, they can install us from the plugin store of whichever e-commerce WYSIWYG platform they're using, and it's just done. You know, and we've got you know some dashboards that you can look and see what we're blocking, and we'll alert you if there's something you need to look at, you know, or some code that isn't performing well, and so on. And we do essentially the same thing for technical teams. But our more technical developer solution also um, has tools and allows you to do deep dives on all of your JavaScript. It also provides things like um, mitigation for bad ads if, you, if you're running ads on your site. And also we uh, can automate deployment of CSPs, content security policies. We have a, uh, you know, so it's basically the goal on both sides is to make it easier to be secure and to enable uh, non-technical people to have a solution that is just as easy to use as the WYSIWYG platform that they decided to use for their e-commerce so they can start out security first on the the good foot. And then on the developer side, provide them with the real-time, runtime application security, um, monitoring, detection, and protection that they need. And to have a lot of flexibility in testing code and reviewing it either before production or uh, before production um, or sites in production with mainly focus on sites in production.
0: So Maggie, what is your thought process when it comes to resolving problems? Because you mentioned like blocking. So like, it, let's imagine I use one of these self-service applications, self-service web service tools. I install auto and I say, hey, listen, protect my site. I don't want any nefarious scripts getting on my site and taking customer data away from me let's say it identifies something. What's the next, it, it can block its activity, but do you use, is it enable remediation? How do you, I guess, convey one of the things I think about, well, here's what I was getting at. One of the things I think about as a if I'm non-technical is like, you might identify something, but I don't know what it is you've identified. Like my nervousness might be like, well, if I click delete, it might ruin the way my platform works or, if I click delete, it might ruin the way my email service provider works. Or there's a hundred different things that could go wrong. I don't have the confidence to click delete. I feel like when we get these antivirus software, a lot of times they, they frame it in a way that's, I, I got confidence. I'm like, I'm going to delete that. I was wondering how you thought about the approach to creating that confidence, So in, uh, specifically in resolution.
1: Yeah. Well, and confidence is the key word there. So we have three different kinds of layers. One is going to be, if this is bad. We know it's bad. Even if it breaks something by blocking it it has absolutely protected you from something very nefarious and if some event comes through of that nature that could be could in any way affect your site then we contact you immediately but it goes into block mode Most of those are based on behavior uh, so you've got some signature but it's um, essentially qualitative comparative analysis and some is signature based and then pattern based behavior based and that's really just stuff that would really gets you in trouble that you don't want to happen. You don't want data exfiltration. You don't want data. You know, And you can, if there's a partner, for instance, that you have that is, you're sending data to, you always have the ability to whitelist those beforehand. So that eliminates, you know, false flag. But then the next important one is identifying those CDEs, not a date libraries, and, and combinations that um, allow us to give you a confidence uh, rating based on, potential exploitability, not just vulnerability. So we don't want to do is like wave flags that keep you or your development team wondering if something's a big problem all day. So we'll give you a low, medium, high, and then there'll be a description that explains like, well, this is an out-of-date library and it has, there's been no CVEs reported yet. So it's sort of low risk, but it's there. You should update to this and we'll tell you what to do. If it's medium, let's say, or it's high, it's been, let's say it's been exploited before, you'll see a link to the CDEs, any related documentation around the exploit. We'll also look for combinations of tech that were essential to the exploitability of that vulnerability, and let you know if you have that combination. And then in our enterprise solution, we actually automate the updating of those libraries for you as well. So you've got out-of-date libraries. You can review it first. Here are the recommended, you know, updates. You can review it and just update it. So you're not out just searching for the latest library and installing yourself. Uh, We can actually update it for you. And then as you grow more confident with the software too, you can just set it to go ahead and do those things for you. You can set different severity rankings, Yeah. the V2 of our um, our fully automated uh, enterprise solution that will be out later, you know, Q4 of this year, will have a lot of dynamic range and customized alert settings and what you do want to get, what you don't. One of the most important things, though, to your point that we think is essential is um, good good hygiene for the inbox. So we're not going to send you anything unless it's really important and that you, you know, the goal is you check your your you know, you get an empty box every day. You've you've had, you've been able to look at anything that comes in. And the second thing is a clear action item and understanding of what's at risk. How bad is it? And what do I need to do? If you're not doing it for me, what do I need to do? And is you doing it for me an option? (laughs) And so that's kind of the key to trying to simplify this, especially for, you know, Teams that don't have a ton of security resources. A lot of develop, a lot of companies, especially SMBs, we know, are just there's a head developer who does everything. You know, yeah, his product, his development, his engineering, his IT, and may not know security that well. And taking another full time, very important job on, is not possible. So creating something that saves you time, saves you money, makes it simple, and gives you uh, peace of mind that you know what's going on and that you understand exactly what the risks are and what to do next is, is mission critical.
0: Yeah. I love the simplification of the way you're envisioning this product. Because when we first started talking about scripts and tags, I started thinking to myself about tag managers and not to call out any different companies, but man, those products are hard to use. Like, <laughs> see, I don't care what anyone says. Like, Oh, it's simple. It's like, no, nah. with the first time you sit down, I feel like at a tag managing terminal it is it's something else it's like
1: <laughs> if you've ever used helium or you've used Ghostry or anything you feel like you've just walked into like a mind map of a beautiful mind you know you're looking yeah. at <laughs> you're looking at neo4j you know de- graph database nodes everywhere and they're just exploding one after the other and we have a similar we had a similar thing and we what we decided um after having long talks with customers about how useful that was, was that it wasn't really very useful. And that what they really needed (laughs) was for a big button that said, fix it for me and an understanding of what was getting fixed. And we said, "Aha, that's it. We just need to fix it for you. And you need to have confidence what's been fixed and you need to know what, how to prioritize, you know, if we, if there's something we can't do for you, what's the priority. And it was about a year's worth of of talking with customers who really loved our product and and still use it and did use it then too and trying to really create something that did the worrying for you and, you know, move away from this sort of FUD model, you know, that a lot of security is sold through, you know, which fear uncertainty, and doubt and move into this peace of mind, brand confidence and automation that, you know, development teams can go back to creating cool stuff and and innovating and building and not uh, just mitigating and monitoring, which is an extremely manual process if you're doing it in-house by yourself.
0: (laughs) No doubt about it. That's exactly, you named the company, but that's exactly what I was thinking. When I first started hearing you talk, I was like, I wonder if this is like those, but no, it's it's more towards the consumer side, which is amazing. Um, I think that's what most like you said the most largest the largest audience wants that which is the simplification the confidence that they know what, what they're doing. Right. I'm curious about your background in tech development because it looks like, you know, we looked you up on LinkedIn, obviously we look up all of our guests on LinkedIn. It looks like you've constantly been involved in the tech side of what I would call entertainment companies, right? Magazines, comms companies, publishers, uh entertainment. Talk about a little bit about like how did you how did you find your way into like developing Software solutions here, and of course, and then of course we're going to take because it looks like you started off as a musician based on your LinkedIn, which is a you know very different from
1: developing code. Well, it is, but you know, music is math. But um, I've had a very circuitous path to where I am today. As most of us probably, when we look in the rearview mirror, realize it's it's probably been more curvy than we imagined. But mine certainly more than most. As you noted, I started off in the '90s as a recording artist and. You know, did seven albums, one with Alex Chilton, who is that's kind of my, my moment of glory, I guess, <laughs> underground artist I really loved. And, um, you know, had one radio hit back in the 90s. And then, um, you know, we had tragedy, as all bands sometimes do. And uh, I ended up leaving the music industry at 29. And, um, you know, the, the, publishing industry was the first one that to willing to have me. <laughs> so I um I kind of had a lot of fast friends in that were journalists and photojournalists and found um found a niche there in magazines specifically, but I was also uh, started off as a writer and a reporter and a you know photographer and just kind of worked my my way up and in two thousand eight I was um at EW Scripts you know Running several of the big magazine brands that we had at the time. And, you know, just like a crushing wave, digital transformation took over the media industry. And the industry scrambled, you know, like I said earlier, to put together teams that understood the industry well enough that could learn digital and shepherd us through a really dark time into new revenue and uh, transformation. And um, I kind of, you know, raised my hand a little too uh, optimistically, maybe, (laughs) at liabilities. But all the same, I I was like, I'll I'll do it. I'd love to do that. And so, the company really invested in me in in getting digital chops, and I got to be one of those very early digital product teams, and had to develop a really deep expertise around JavaScript because uh, it was how you made money, the performance. You know the the business model, understanding you know CPMS and how you know milliseconds make a difference in terms of how many ads are going to get delivered and viewability and all those kinds of things that ultimately work into how you make money in in digital and um, e commerce was in that same vein and you know having developed just over about ten years of moving my way from a writer to uh, an editor to publisher to then becoming one of these first digital product teams in the media industry is what really gave me the background to spot what was happening with my friend's media company when I caught that developer. And it wasn't that I had become some great coder or anything. It was because I really understood pattern and really understood what the code was supposed to look like and what it wasn't supposed to look like. And then, you know, when I, when I realized that there were companies out there Selling these um, exploit kits essentially uh, in this ad because it's smells like this is a business. And I sat in a hotel room for about a week and wrote the patent that we actually just um, got uh, final finalized that, like last month, which is exciting. Uh, I think it's less than one percent of all technical uh, engine, uh, utility patents go to a um, single female inventor. So it was kind of cool. We're a female-led company, and we really do the rah-rah for women. So, worth mentioning. Um, that is, but um, but really, the evolution of that original um, idea and technology and, and intellectual property that we built on was advanced by um, by my co-founder and CTO Josh Summit, and also um, now uh, Chad Fowler, who's quite famous and well-known. He'd kill me if he heard me say famous. <laughs> quite well-known in the development world. Um, he's written several books on. Ruby, Ruby and Rails, and uh, his company Wonderlist was acquired by Microsoft uh, way back. And uh, just a really smart, and hilariously funny man. And so he and Josh have been driving the evolution of that initial tech to where it is today. And and you know the vision of being able to secure the biggest gaps that are out there right now is the mission. And being able to look at this browser. Situation, You know, whether you're serving a site or whether people are going to your site, being able to protect and identify and detect and monitor for activity that's happening in the browser that could go sideways for your company or, or for you as a consumer is our approach to the problem.
0: Well, I think it's a wise decision because, I mean, there's, there's more tools. I feel like every day now that are coming out, that are just basically glorified browsers, right? Like uh, Chromebook. Isn't Chromebook as like a, you can't store anything on the local machine? It's like basically a browsing tool.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think of it this way. You know, if you think of the Internet as an operating system, then you might think of it as the world's largest, most ubiquitous operating system. And it's mostly made of open source software or with open source dependencies and no one owns the responsibility of sending you an update like you might get from Microsoft or you might get, you know, from, from Apple that it would say, Hey, you know, update. And so what that creates is just a snake pit full of out-of-date libraries, vulnerable code, dependency upon dependency, and so on that you can't, you know, you could try to reboot the internet, you know, and I think. There are those who have tried, and Tim Berners-Lee, I think, you know, is is still probably pursuing that, but trying to get the entire earth to shift its spin and stop using JavaScript or take on new problems, especially at a time where we have a pandemic, uh, we have an economic crisis, adding something that's not necessarily going to be revenue positive, it might actually cost you a lot of money. There's not a lot of appetite for that, but there is appetite for fixing it for you. And there's appetite for creating a safer environment, and there's absolute need, as you know, everyone is uh, going through digital transformation. We really understand how connected we are, you know, through the internet, and um, how pervasive that is in every aspect of our lives. How important it is to enter a new era of security in the way we think about it.
0: No, I absolutely agree. I want to go back to one part of um, your story, your background story, and. I want to bring this up, the the music side of things. So I have a good friend who actually got a double major at University of Virginia with me. He got a degree in finance and he got a degree in music theory. He said music theory was except um, significantly harder than it was in <laughs> the finance degree. <laughs> and then he ultimately had a very successful career in finance because I guess he couldn't make it as a drummer. I don't know. But <laughs> but then the, the movie The Big Short comes out and he says, see what I mean? And like Michael Burry, who's legendary, you know, legendarily called the shorting of the housing market, was also an avid drummer. And he said, and he said something similar to what you said, which is the constant study of mathematical patterns is applicable. And I want to hear from your perspective deeper in there. Like, how do you think understanding music, writing music, being able to read music helped you learn to code? Because your story of basically volunteering to learn is a story that's going to continue to repeat itself, which is there's more businesses that need technical expertise, then there are technical expertise to fill the roles. Totally. Therefore, there are going to be people that have no background volunteering to learn this. You have an interesting perspective since you have a music background. What was it? Could you pinpoint something that enabled this transition or was it a series of things? I'm curious when you look back on that moment, what do you think helped you?
1: Yeah, well, it's pattern recognition. Um, That's like my super skill and I would never depict myself as some great coder. Like I'm a hacky front-end person at best. You know, Josh and Chad are, you know, are the deep geek developers. I can break things. (laughs) Um, I can reverse engineer things. I can hack a few things. And I can see when the pattern is not making sense. And that's what really was what allowed me to catch um, the first guy. And you can think of that in musical terms as something being pitchy. You know, when a song is pitchy, you can hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an oscillation to that. So it's, it's quantifiable, too. You can see that there's math to it. And I think that there are certain elements of scripts that if you're working with them every single day, you can just see when they're off. You can see when a code style has changed dramatically. You can see strange things that just aren't part of the normal. Here's a good example. One of the first things I noticed was I was looking at the... The DSP ad tags, double-click for publishers for those not in the ad world. And this is the ad server that's going to help put the ads on the page. So AdSense or AdWords, those are going to deliver ads. You're either going to send through AdWords, your ads, or you're going to receive ads on your page through AdSense or other ad networks. But they're going to have to get there some way, and that's through the ad server. So double-click for publishers is the way it gets there. And, you know, publishers will create nomenclature pretty consistently. And the thing I noticed was, um, the first thing I noticed was their ad tags. Um, one of the nomenclatures had changed. And it was really subtle, but, um, you know, let's just call it site.com. <laughs> one of the ad tags, for instance, said um, capital S-I-T-E underscore 728 by 90. Now well, that's a leaderboard you know size. And so it might also say underscore top. And that would let you know if you're the ad ops person that that's the top leaderboard position and it's on that particular you know, capital S I T E dot com, and if you're an ad ops, that's how you would target that ad unit where you want the ad to be delivered. So the first thing I noticed is I saw some ad tags set were one was lowercase S I T E underscore 728 by 90 dash underscore you know top. Another one was all caps S I T E dash 728 by 90, and it was so it's a small little twitch uh, in my brain on the nomenclature that first um, made me suspicious. And then as I started to look at the ad tags more closely, I noticed that the publisher account number was changing uh, when I would refresh. And so I would see the nomenclature and the publisher account for DFP changing. And as I started to look at those and, and jot them down, I realized that there was an entirely different ad server that didn't belong to the company, that was typing in ads with you know, spoofed ad tags, that nomenclature was you know, very subtly different, but enough that you could keep track of easily if you needed to. The next thing I found was um, a little script that basically said, fire 30% of the time. And so it was saying, 30% of the time, siphon off all of this, the ad delivery to this other server. And so that's how it was, you know, basically targeting off 30% of their revenue. So it was really a lulling. They weren't making no money, which is what was really confusing to them and would have been obvious, you know, but this sort of social engineering of knowing, well, you can't steal all the money, <laughs> you know? Um, and then I, I just kept finding things like that. Um, like I found a plugin, in. this was on a Drupal. This, the site was, um, was on, was, was using Drupal as their framework and, they had some plugins, which, you know, in an open source community, WordPress, whatever it may be, there's all sorts of solutions. But if you don't check those carefully, who knows who's made them, who knows what they're doing? They might say they're going to increase your traffic, but they might actually just be injecting ad tags. You know? And that, in this case, is what was happening, too, is this developer had also created a, you know, optimized SEO kind of um, uh, plugin. And was using that to inject other ad networks and exfiltrate, um, you know, kind of uh, cookie stealing and all sorts of retargeting information from customers. So, but again, it's kind of that twitch in the brain, you know, which I think if you're in music, you have sort of an intuition for mathematics, whether you realize it or not, because you understand the sound of math. And that gives you a different frequency in terms of pattern recognition. And that's kind of how I've always managed my way through it, I guess.
0: No, that's fascinating the way you described that, because I remember the first time I, pl- I played guitar, I wouldn't say I was good as you, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I remember my instructor teaching me, like, what? I forget what he called them, so now I'm going to... But, like, basically, like, there's a specific type of way to play notes on a guitar that make it sound evil. Sure. He's like, yeah, these, these are the scales you play in, like, death metal. I'm like, why? He's like, This because the pattern always works. It just sounds like scary. And I was like, what do you mean? And he started playing all his different variations of it. I was like, oh my God, every single time you heard it, I was like, you know, it sounded morbid. Like I couldn't imagine like a, you can sound morbid, but there it was.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's so true. And not to be a total, total geek, that, you know, I kind of, I, 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 there are some death metal bands I love, but I was always a punk rock girl. Yes. Um, jazz and punk rock um, which have no roots in the kind of music I actually ended up making records doing, which was more psychedelic, you know, jam band kind of stuff that, you know, proposed to be original that sounds a lot like the dead. Um, but, uh, but I, I still, when I'm, you know, looking at code or I'm trying to find something, the pattern is a thing. And I'm always listening to something like jazz and, or, you know, chip tunes. It's really geeky. I like chip tunes. So, um, and, and Chad is also in Josh, pretty much everyone in the company plays music. Chad is a very accomplished jazz, uh, avant-garde jazz saxophonist. I love to listen to his music. Also the Doppelarians, a great uh, CD. So check it out. <laughs> a little plug for Chad.
0: <laughs> listen, listen, this is, this is the perfect transition. <laughs> I got to plug our sponsor, but it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. And Maggie, this is where we ask you questions about your life away from Otto so that our audience can get to know you a little better. So you kind of talked about you like playing punk rock. I um, mean, you listen to punk rock, excuse me, growing up. You like playing more funk, jam. You got tons. It sounds like all your coworkers are accomplished musicians. We looked you up on Twitter. You got guitars hanging in the background. So I got to ask, we'll start there. Are you a guitar player or are you a diff- do you play a different instrument?
1: Um, I do play guitar. I will say um, when I was with the band Buttermilk, um, all of that badass guitar playing is not me. That would be David Simmons, who passed away uh, tragically in 2000, which is why I left the industry. But I do play guitar. It's my main writing uh, instrument. I also play cello pretty miserably, (laughs) (laughs) which was my first instrument. And I have an absolute love for drum and bass, but... Zero talent for either. <laughs> Mostly, I sing and, and you know write write a couple words here and there. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it.
0: Now, do you still play on your free
1: time? I do, actually. In fact, a friend of mine who is the owner of an indie label called Tone Tree in Nashville has been hounding me and has convinced me to do an EP this year, just five songs, which I'm going to do um, later hopefully about the same time, uh, the book drops. So in May,
0: that is awesome. So we're going to get you back on stage.
1: No, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, I do have some sort of grandiose solutions of having some weird, like anime, um, you know, projection of myself. That would be pretty cool. (laughs)
0: Listen, if you put on a helmet, like dead mouse or Daft Punk or something like that, no, no, no. Then you get to get ultimate confidence.
1: (laughs) There you go. I love that.
0: That's great. <laughs> so when you're not, you know, you love, you have a love for music, you have a love for code, you have a love for technology. What are your other interests outside of um, that? you like to engage in outside of work.
1: Physics. I love physics. Um, Richard Feynman is um, probably my most favorite notable physicist. Cause he also kind of intersected music. He had a love for bongos and tried to make a pilgrimage to Tuva to hear the Tuvian throat singers who didn't quite make it before he passed away. But yeah, I love physics. I think um, understanding how things work is so endlessly interesting, and and sort of no matter what you're thinking about intersects that somewhere. Um, I'm also really passionate about drinkable water. Uh, I feel like there's just not enough awareness about the water problem. The company is a technology pioneer with the World Economic Forum. I get to be in some of those work groups too. That expand beyond cyber and privacy but into sustainable drinkable water and sanitation which doesn't sound that sexy but it's um it's such a big problem for us in the future and no,
0: you're, you, we're seeing in texas i mean it's something we we in the united states have completely taken for granted yeah right. we're completely dependent on government systems to clean water for us yeah and here you are in texas huge populations of people have don't have access to clean water now, and this is the first time they're faced with this real big conundrum. Like, how do I consume water, which we've completely taken for granted?
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I hope that everyone in you know light of sort of some sort of the things that we're we're going through, will find some of the uh, stuff telltale kind of stories out there. You can look up, you can Google Cape Town uh, Zero Water Day, and find out a lot of what happened in Cape Town and uh, in, in South Africa, and They created some really interesting models around water usage that really changed the paradigm that had a significant impact, I think, although others argue that the monsoons just came. But um, I think it's important accountability that we all have to really become conscientious, not just um, kind of blah, blah, woke, if you will, but like actually demonstrative, you know, and, and do the things and take it upon ourselves to be conscious and present in our thinking every day today when we'd light lights on or running a sink. I almost clobbered a Starbucks guy one day because he just had the, the faucet running in the background while he was helping customers. And I was so angry because it's it's our water. You know, it's not his or you know, theirs, just waste. And it, But there's not that um, kind of thinking really yet around water crisis. So uh, that's a really important one to me.
0: Listen, I'm. I like to think of myself as an environmentalist as well. I saw this interesting documentary once about how I won't name them. <laughs> Anyone can check it out. But like how bottling companies, water bottled water companies, come into like towns, get the let's call them like the rights, the access to the yeah, they get access to the water and they basically pump towns dry and bounce.
1: Yeah, it's a I drink your milkshake. Yeah, kind of situation. <laughs> hmm. Nestle. I'll say it for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. I heard about this. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe this is an actual practice that's running.
1: Yeah, it's it's upsetting. It's very upsetting.
0: It's a heavy issue.
1: I think, like security, though, we don't know what we think. What we think our rights should be, you know. I mean, you can parallel this to we don't think we know as a public wealth, as a wealth of humanity, what we what our expectations on water rights as a municipal. Um you know, for everyone to have access to should be. So we don't know what to think about people bottling it and selling it back. So it's kind of like, we don't know how we should be represented as citizens of the internet in this unsovereign nation that has no landmass, no captains, and no one to call when your Facebook account gets broken into, you know?
0: Yeah. It's too convenient to look at just how it impacts you directly. So like, I have a cool website. When? I have access to bottled water whenever I want. When? But you don't think about what it took to get there. Yeah. Totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Maggie, <laughs> you've definitely been one of the more interesting guests we've had on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing all the background that you have from music to volunteering to code to actually getting your own patent. It's pretty insane to hear these stories. Always love hearing the stories of how people evolve. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your music interest and background. I mean, you have some very eclectic interests. I got to say, makes for a great interview.
1: Uh, well, thank you so much for your time and, and interest. It was wonderful talking to you and can't wait to hear the show.
0: IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.